Good morning, everyone. Always enjoy worshiping with you here. Uh, Kayla and I talk about that quite a bit. It's one of our favorite places to worship. And so maybe you're visiting today, and I hope you'll think about that and appreciate what's going on, ask questions. Uh, there are lots of folks around uh, that you can ask questions about what services are available or, or maybe even anything we discuss. I'd be glad for you to ask me a question if you are interested in that. Uh, today, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. And that's because uh, we've been reading through John, and John 14, 15, 16 is really kind of where the, the sermon series is. But in 14, 15, and 16, there are several things about the Holy Spirit. And so I want to look at that and see what Scripture actually says about that. But as we get ready, I want to uh, give you a middle picture. Because the question that I want all of us to ask the question that I'm asking and what all of us to ask is, uh, what is our relationship to God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit? What is our relationship to that? And let me see if we can picture that in a more concrete way. So uh, in my uh, visits with you over the last 10 months or so, I have not burdened you with a lot of discussion of Greek words, but you, there are some, Right. And I want us to think about this word for spirit today. Pneuma, pneumatos is our Greek word for spirit. You uh, may know that it also means not just spirit, but wind or even breath. If you think about what does spirit and wind and breath have in common? Well, for one, they're invisible. And number two, they are forms of life and energy. There are also forces in a way, but I want you to think about that. Uh, the Greek word pneuma shows up in uh, like pneumatic tires or pneumatic tools, air-powered tools or air-filled tires. So if you're, you're working on building your Greek vocabulary, there you go. But now let's, if we know that spirit is uh, uh, used for these non-visible but powerful and life-giving things, then let's envision that you're uh, in a boat, maybe like one of the boats the disciples would have used to fish from on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, you've got oars in the boat for days when there's not much wind, but you've also maybe got a sail, a simple sail on the boat. And so where are you in relation to God's wind, God's spirit? So there's, a, there's more than one way we can configure this. If we think of the Spirit as wind and you and your life as out on the boat, it's possible that you are out in the boat and seeing and perceiving no wind at all are stalled. And being stalled, you decide to get out the oars and you start rowing and you begin to make a little progress. And maybe that's where you see yourself. Maybe you perceive there's no wind at all and you're rowing. It's also possible, though, that you are rowing furiously. Your back is into it. You are rowing for all your might, and the wind is against you. Is that possible? Is it possible you could be rowing in a certain direction, and God actually wants you to go another direction? That's possible also. Uh, it's, it's also possible that you, perceiving that there is a wind, 
and that it looks like it might be going in a favorable direction, that you lay down your oars and you put up the sail and you just sort of steady the boat with the tiller and here we go. Where is the wind taking us? Now that sounds kind of fun and simple, right? Doesn't it? And then it's also possible that uh, the wind is, is uh, going and favorable and going in a healthy direction and you think, I want to add my effort to that, and you get the oars out, and you begin to row in conjunction with the wind. Now, that would bring about some pretty great movement, wouldn't it? Where are you in relation to God's Holy Spirit? Let's listen to some things Jesus promises. We're going to start in John 14, verse 15. But if you're, uh, if you're a Bible read-along person, or if you just want to see more of the context, then keep it open because we're going to look at a few verses across three chapters here. Starting in John 14, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his own departure. Just within a few days, he's going to be crucified. Then after three days, he'll be resurrected. And over a period of about 40 days, he will appear to them and teach them. Then after that, he's going to ascend back to the Father. He will no longer have God incarnate, God in the flesh on earth. And he's preparing his disciples for that because for a few years now, he's been with them daily, walking with them, teaching, doing miracles in front of them, casting out demons in front of them, correcting them, protecting them, challenging them. And he's been right there doing that. And now he's about to be gone. And one might ask if you were one of those 12 apostles or even the wider circle of disciples around Jesus. So you've gotten us into this new thing and then you're going to leave us? And Jesus has a lot of words of comfort for them. But we'll start in John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. And the word there uh, can be translated an advocate, a, a paraclete. Helper is pretty good. We're going to go with helper today. He will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And Judas, not Judas Iscariot, another disciple named Judas, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? This is a question that disciples might see things the world doesn't see. And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him 
and we will come to him and make our home with him. How does that happen? Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Wow, that's a lot to talk about. We should probably stop and unpack this just a little bit. First, Jesus still is talking to the disciples about obedience. Did you catch that? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Those who love me will obey my word. And it's not just my word. It's the Father's word. It's the word of God. You will keep that and we will come and we will live with you. So let's start with really basic. What's our relationship to God's Holy Spirit? If we are not submitting to the word of God, then we are opposing God. Right? You either submit to God or you're opposed to God. If we are not living lives that submit to the clear word of God, we are not working with God's Holy Spirit. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If anyone keeps my commandments, I will ask the Father and the Father will send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gets accused of a lot of things the Holy Spirit never did. I'll talk about preachers for just a minute. One of my uh, beloved professors, the late Dr. Jack Lewis, challenged us. He said, when you're talking about whether Spirit is calling you and Spirit is leading you, you got to ask yourself, why does the Holy Spirit always seem to be calling preachers to bigger churches with higher salaries? Thank you, Lord, right? Sometimes the Holy Spirit asks you to do something you don't want to do. We can sit down and do a personality test and a gifts inventory, and I think that's helpful and interesting. But if at the end of the day, what we wind up saying is, this is easy for me, so that's what the Spirit is calling me to do, we might be confused. Because the Holy Spirit says, take up your cross. The Holy Spirit says, love your enemies. The Holy Spirit says, forgive if you want to be forgiven. The Holy Spirit says, your body is a temple and I will live in it if you will keep it holy. So uh, even before he says the word spirit, he's already talking about our relationship to the Spirit of God when he says, if you love me, What's the first fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5? Love. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And we're going to come back to this idea of obedience uh, and our relationship to the Spirit. It keeps coming up. But this seems really simple and upfront when we ask ourselves, what's our relationship to the Spirit? You can't ask that without at the same time asking, what's my relationship to God? And we are fooling ourselves if we think that our relationship to God has nothing to do with our lifestyle, behavior, or obedience. Then Jesus said, I will give you a helper to be with you. How long? Did anybody notice in verse 16 how long the helper is going to be with us? Forever. Helper forever. I like the sound of this. Because I feel like I'm going to need help forever. How about you? 
First of all, as a helper. There are multiple ways that Christ will reveal that the Spirit helps us. We'll talk about some of those. But I just want to talk generically about the idea of help. Did Jesus, when he was on the earth, help his disciples? Of course he did. How did he help them? He helped them by telling them the truth, by talking to them about uh, the kingdom of God, by showing them what the plan was that God had in mind, by, by instructing them, sometimes correcting them, other times uh, picking them back up when they had stumbled into sin and gotten off on the wrong track. There are many ways that Christ helped them, and his help is going to continue by the Spirit even after he leaves. In fact, his leaving is essential for the Spirit's coming. Now, in one sense, that's because it's the Father's plan. But in another sense, it's essential because in order for the Spirit to come and be as close to us as it is now, living in Christian, in order for that to happen, something's got to be done about our guilty, sinful state. In the Old Testament, when they were going to build the tabernacle, anybody remember about the tabernacle? They had that before they had the temple. The tabernacle and the temple have the same floor plan and the same purpose. The tabernacle, the word for tabernacle just means tent. It's a portable sanctuary. And that portable sanctuary was their portable temple. But before the cloud that represents the presence of God comes into that tabernacle and occupies it, they have to go through with sacrificial blood and sanctify everything so that it is atoned for and made holy and dedicated to God. And then the cloud can come in. Then in the days of Solomon, when they build a brick and mortar temple in Jerusalem and give it a stationary and permanent place there on the temple mount, same thing happens again. Before the cloud of the presence of God will come in and occupy that temple, they go through and they sanctify everything with blood because it needs to be made holy in order for God to come in. And the same is true for you. The same is true for me. This is why Christ must die and be resurrected before the Spirit can come because His sacrifice will be the once and for all sacrifice by which we can be made holy. So while we're thinking about our relationship to the Spirit, the Spirit of God will be at work on us and around us, but it cannot live and abide. You know, the word abide's a little more than live, right? The word abide is like remain in and, and be at home with. The Spirit of God cannot live and abide in us until we have been sanctified by the blood of Christ. It may be at work on us and around us and communicating to us, but it cannot live and abide in us until we are sanctified by the blood of Christ. So uh, here's a passage you may not have heard of, Acts 2.38. Let's think about it in relation to the Spirit. When I was a kid, I knew Acts 2.38. I never even noticed that the Holy Spirit was mentioned in it. I'm sure I quoted it from memory, but I never even noticed that it was in there. So what's happened in Acts 2 is uh, Jesus has 
been crucified and resurrected and ascended to the Father and has poured out the Holy Spirit in his disciples. And that's causing them to share that message with other people. So Peter has preached about that. And the people are convicted about that. Is convicting people of sin also a work of the Spirit? Yes, it is. So people are convicted about that. And then they say, what should we do? I mean, that might be where you are this morning in relation to the Spirit. It's under conviction. And so they say, what should we do? So the Spirit is moving in this direction, and they pick up an oar and say, which way do I row? I know I need to do something. What do I need to do? Somebody give me direction. What do we do? And Peter says, here's what you do. You repent. That means you change your direction. You've been going this way, and God's going this way. You're going to obey him. What did Jesus say? If you love me, keep my commandments. Which way is the Spirit blowing? The same way Jesus is, because when we talk about Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Father, we're not talking about three different gods. There's one God. What should we do? We hear the message. We want in. We want to be a part of what God is doing. God's moving. We want to move with him, not against him. Peter says, here's what you need to do. You need to repent. You change your direction. That's something you can, you can decide about. You can decide about the direction of your life, whether you want to obey God or not. Repent and be baptized. Where baptized means to be plunged and washed in water. The simple act of obedience with profound, profound symbolic associations because one is all in with Christ. One is buried with Christ. Christ died and was buried and then he was resurrected. One is raised with Christ. So there's washing, there's all-in commitment, there's reenactment of the gospel. I am in Jesus' name submitting to being buried and being raised. What do we do? Repent, change your direction and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. This is the power behind it. For the forgiveness of your sins. Forgiveness of sin? What does that mean? That means you won't be punished for sin. It means you'll have them washed away. They'll be off your record. You're realigning your life to move in the direction that God is moving. You are submitting to Christ as Lord and King. This commitment of the heart will be evident in your actions. And so in, in that commitment, that covenant ceremony of repentance and confession and baptism, the blood of Christ, the blood that's shed in that death, and now you're reenacting his death and resurrection, that blood of Christ brings you forgiveness of sin. Washed, sanctified, made holy, justified, counted righteous in the sight of God, born again, no penalty for you. There's a lot of metaphors in Scripture for what this is. But this is a point in time in which your response of faith and obedience to God brings to you sanctification of the blood of Christ. And then, he says, you will receive the gift of God's Holy Spirit. Verse 39 helps us also. That was Acts 2.38. Verse 39, so he says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and this promise is for you, those people who were there, and for your children, the next generation, 
and for many who are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So it was for them right then and there. But Jesus had said, this spirit will be with you forever. And he says, for your children. So their children are going to grow up and learn about this, and they're going to answer their question the same way their question was answered. When their children say, what do I need to do in order to obey God? They're going to say the same thing. And for as many as are far off. Well, that opens up the whole globe and all generations. We're kind of far off from Jerusalem around the year A.D. 30. But the promise is still for us because the Spirit is here forever. By the way, that last little part, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. If you are within the sound of the word of God this morning, he's called. That might be your relationship to the spirit of God this morning. Might be calling. Be sure when that comes up on your caller ID, you don't just ignore it like a telemarketer, okay? In fact, I suspect that if we thought about it, Every one of us in this room could remember a time when the Spirit of God was calling and we did not want to answer. In fact, sometimes even for Christians, the Spirit of God is leading us a certain way and we don't want to go. I mean, we still like to say what we want to say the way we want to say it when we say it. The tongue is hard to control, right? But you... You have it there. You hear it. You hear God say, mm, don't say that. Slow down. Say nothing. Think about this before you say it. And sometimes we listen to the call and sometimes we don't. But your relationship to the Spirit of God might be that he's not yet living in you, but he is calling to you. Hope that you will slow down and listen. What is it? God is saying through his word, by his spirit, with the harmony of his people, that today applies to you. In the last part of what we read in verses, verse 26, I want to focus there for a minute. This is a very special part. To me, this is a very special part of what he promises. So this is 1426. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, I'm going to tell you how I'm taking that, and I think how most Bible interpreters take that. I think he makes a specific promise to the apostles here. For example, I will bring to remembrance everything that I have said to you. Well, they're the ones that walk with Jesus. I mean, there's a wider circle of disciples, so maybe it's for that wider circle of disciples. But uh, he is going to, what's the Spirit going to do? He will teach you all things, bring to your remembrance everything that I have said for you. This promise of the Spirit helping the disciples understand what Jesus has been teaching and remember what he's been teaching is a foundation for our New Testament. Let me explain what I mean. Clearly, if you read the Gospels, even the Gospel of John at this point, even this chapter that we're in, clearly the disciples do not yet fully understand what Jesus is doing. It's full of questions, and then they'll say, oh, now we understand, and Jesus will say, 
Really? And then they don't understand. So they don't yet understand. But the Spirit is going to be poured out on them in the early chapters of Acts. In fact, in Acts 2. And with that will come clearer understanding and a divinely enhanced memory. So that when then John writes the Gospel of John, he's not as confused as he was on the day he said it. Why not? Because Jesus has helped him through the Spirit to remember and to understand. The next generation of Christians, starting about the year 100, will recognize that what they write and what they preach and what they know is secondary in authority to what the apostles said, and preached, and knew. 2 Timothy 3, 16 says, all scripture is given by inspiration. Do you hear the spirit word there? The inspiration of God. And therefore, it's useful for teaching and instruction in righteousness. So this is a reminder that what the, uh, what the spirit might be doing today should be verified with Scripture. It's going to be consistent with Scripture. This is one of the ways that we test the spirits, as 1 John 4 would encourage us to do. We go back and say, well, what did Jesus actually say? And how did the apostles explain that? Because they had a special gift of the Spirit that allowed them to compose these words. If you do not care about Scripture, or if you say, yeah, the apostles said that, but... I don't think that matters. We have good reason to wonder whether you're walking in step with the Spirit because the same Spirit that led their understanding, the same Spirit that helped them to remember what Jesus said and to explain it in writing for us is the same Spirit that is given to us when we make a commitment to the heart and are baptized into Christ. So I think it's just another basic thing we, we ought to remember. These scriptures themselves are also a way in which the Spirit moves and speaks. In chapter 15, Jesus has a little parable here about being a vine. This is 15.1. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. He's the one that grows it and prunes it. And every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean or pruned because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. Doesn't that sound like that Holy Spirit language again? Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Here it is, verse 5. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So another metaphor besides our little sailboat metaphor would be the vine metaphor. And that we are connected to Christ in order to bear fruit. And uh, perhaps you're aware that they grew a lot of grapes in the land of Israel. Vineyards were very common, and what they knew was that we need to prune those vines back in order for them to bear fruit. Has God ever been busy pruning you? 
Maybe that's your relationship to the Holy Spirit right now. Maybe there's some pruning going on. Maybe you've got uh, just too many distractions in your life and you're feeling the pressure to prune back on those. Maybe you've been growing some uh, wild grapes over here in sin, feeling the conviction of that, and God is pruning that. Maybe someone loves you enough who's close to you, who comes to you and says, I'm concerned about you because I'm seeing the way you treat your spouse, or I'm seeing the way you talk to your children, or I'm seeing the way you talk to your parents. And they become God's agent of the Spirit to come to you and say, I really wish you'd think about that. That doesn't seem to be what Christ wants you to be. Those are hard conversations. But pruning shears do hard things. But on the positive side, he says, you will abide in me and bear much fruit. Perhaps your relationship to the Spirit is this. The Spirit is God. The Spirit of God is in you, and you so want to cooperate with it. You want to do good. You want to help others become Christians. You want to be generous. You want to be more joyful and heartfelt in worship. You want to be a better mother, father, son, or daughter. You want to be a better influence. You want these good things to flow out of you. We have a helper. It's not simply just up to you. Help. God, we have help. There is something flowing out from the trunk vine of this that is flowing out into the branches, which is us, and whatever that is that's being provided to us is what's going to bear the fruit. It's not just you on your own. It's you yielding, putting up your sail for the Spirit, listening to the Word, rowing in that direction. You're cooperating with it, but it's not just you. In Galatians chapter 5, the fruits of the Spirit are listed. These are things that you want, and the Spirit will help you to produce them. Love. Sometimes love is hard, and we have to learn to love in a different way. Not in the easy way, I love you because you're nice to me, but in the difficult way, I love you because God loves you. Joy. We love to feel good and be happy, but that's not always the same as joy. Joy comes from deep places and cannot be easily taken away from us. It's a sense that we know where we belong and what our purpose is. And even if we have difficult things to do, it feels good because we know it is good. Peace. Oh, we pray for peace. We pray for peace in the world. We pray for peace in families. We pray for peace in here. And the Spirit will help us to be peacemakers in all those ways. It will give us wisdom of words to say. It will remind us of how to behave. And it will direct us to ways that we can act that we wouldn't have thought of on our own. Patience. Here's a prayer. Lord, help me to be patient with these people around me for one more minute, right? You're going to need that prayer sometimes. And what you don't realize is those people praying that about you at the same moment. So one of you is probably going to get your prayer answered, right? That'll help. All of these virtues that we see here, we talk about goodness and generosity and faithfulness. Surely it's a comfort to us. 
that Christ will say, I'm going to send my spirit and he's going to help produce these fruits in you. It's not just up to you. Put up your sail, check your compass, and row in the direction the spirit is rowing. One last verse for us to look at. This is from the beginning of chapter 16, John 16. So he's, you know, we divided the Bible up into chapters. John didn't put them in chapters. It's one long discourse of Jesus in which the promise of the Holy Spirit is a major part. Um, but in verse 7, okay, I'll read uh, two verses, verses 7 and 8. John 16, 7 and 8. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. So we talked about that a little bit. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, this is not one we think about very often. We think about fruits of the Spirit, being baptized, receiving the gift of the Spirit, the leading of the Spirit, the Word of God is coming from the Spirit, us being holy to receive the Spirit. But the Spirit also is at work in the world to convict the world of sin. I don't know exactly how that works, but I think I see a couple of ways it works. First of all, the Spirit giving us the Word of God leads us to go out and live lives in accord with the will of God. And those who are disobeying God look at that and they see that example. And if we do it in love and humility, it can be very convicting. If we go further and we share the Word of God and people hear us talk about, teach about, preach about, have conversations over coffee about, here's what I was just reading this week in my Bible. Here's what we talked about on Sunday, or here's what I was just bringing to my mind, some story about Jesus, and we talk about that. For those who've never heard, it's an astonishing and convicting thing. And for those who have heard and know better, it's an astonishing and convicting thing. So both by the example of those who live out the will of the Spirit, also by the Word, from the spirit that we share, the world is convicted of sin. I think there's more to what the spirit is doing to convict the world of sin. So we're going to step over here into the mystery box for just a minute because this is a mystery. But let's just look at some of the circumstantial evidence. There are people who don't have a Bible in their hand and who... Uh, don't have a Christian friend speaking to them the word of God, but who feel conviction of sin. Where is it coming from? Maybe it's coming from some training they had in their early childhood, but I think there's more. The Bible tells us that we are all made in the likeness of God. Every human being, whether they are living out their heritage with God or not, has been created with a spirit. And being created as spiritual beings, we still pick up some spiritual signals, whether we're listening to them or not. One of the ways this is manifest in the world is that people all over the world agree that murder is wrong. They agree that lying is bad. They agree that you shouldn't abuse children. They agree you shouldn't steal someone else's stuff. Now, I'm not saying that everybody lives that out, but somehow we're aware of that. 
And when we don't live out those basic principles of goodness, we're aware of that too. Somehow, our conscience, our spirit, our souls, whether we are seeking God actively or not, pick up on the movement of the Spirit. And it can be convicting. And that might be where you are in relation to the Spirit at this moment. Even as a Christian, it might be where you are. Does any Christian understand what I'm talking about? That as you strive to grow and live and follow the example of Christ, you're aware there's this bad habit or there's this way I am or there's this immaturity and I'm trying to grow up. And it might also be that someone who hasn't made a commitment to Christ is being called by God in this way, by the conviction that the Spirit is bringing, just simply because you are a spiritual being in a world that God himself holds together every moment, how could you not at least pick up on something of the wind of the Spirit? So we're going we're gonna to finish up in a moment with a song. And that song is going to create a few minutes of a special window of opportunity. We're going to stand and sing, and we're going to open this door of opportunity for you if you are under conviction, if the spirit of the wind is blowing. Even if you're not sure what the compass heading should be or which direction you should row, but if you want to say, I, I'm listening for a moment, I'm tuned in, I've heard something here, I don't want to let this moment pass, when I walk out the door and just stop listening, I'm listening now. I want someone to help me. You could take that opportunity and come to the front and we will pick up the conversation from there with scripture and prayer and all of the things that invite the spirit to do its work. Then as we go out today, will we go out with our sails up letting the Spirit, the Word of God, the example of Christ help us determine our direction and speed us on our way, us rowing in direction with it, cooperating with the Spirit? Or will we go back to some of our frustrations that happen because we're not doing that? I hope we will all hear Jesus say, I've given you a helper who's with you forever. He will help you to obey and to produce fruit. So we have that opportunity now if we can help you. We invite you. Please come. Let's stand together and sing.